0: Buddhist Geeks, Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 127, Pop Buddhism and Satori Porn. In this episode, we speak with Zen teacher Brad Warner, author of the newly released Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, on his criticisms of popular culture Buddhism and the difficulty of describing enlightenment in terms of experience. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with Brad Warner. Brad, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, wish I, just, I could be in Denver. I know, right? And just a little bit about Brad. We've had you on the show before. We talked to you about your last book, "Sit Down and Shut Up," and so your first book, "Hardcore Zen," and then mm-hmm. you recently released a new book called "Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate." Yeah. Dude, where did that title come from?
1: <laughs> a yogurt commercial. There's this yogurt commercial where these two women are sitting around talking about how great this uh, new flavor of yogurt is. And one of them says, it's like Zen wrapped in karma dipped in chocolate.
0: Oh, I just, I just okay. thought that was
1: funny. I put it on the bundle of files I sent to my editor as a kind of a, a joke. And I'd send him an email saying, I don't really want to call the book this. It's just I haven't thought of anything yet. And apparently their marketing people got a hold of that and were like, you have to call it this. And I, you know, I'm like, you have to promise me you'll uh, keep the uh, yogurt people away from me if they, uh, <laughs> if they, if they decide come. to get mad. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 totally.
1: <laughs> but so far they haven't complained, so we're still going out there. I don't know, maybe they don't even know about the book.
0: And I'm noticing the subtitle, A Trip Through Death, Sex, Divorce, and Spiritual Celebrity in Search of the True Dharma. Yeah. This book is, in some ways, just like Hardcore Zen, is kind of semi-biographical in a way, and then it's also got some teaching in it. And part of the biography, which... When did the content of the book cover? Was it 2006, 2007-ish?
1: 2007. Basically, I tried to make my framework January 1st, 2007 to December 31st, 2007, and and keep everything sort of within that framework, although I strayed out of it a little
0: bit. Gotcha. And during the time that this book covered in 2007, your mom died, you lost your job, you and your wife (laughs) split up, and at the same time, you're teaching Zen, promoting your books, and writing a column on the Suicide Girls. So it sounds like one hell of a year, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you forgot my grandmother died, too. So, you know, wow. I, had a, I had a nice little bookends, you know, my, my mom died in January, my grandmother died at the end of November. Wow. So uh, nice little symmetry there.
0: I thought besides the interesting biographical stuff in here, I mean, you're, you're actually a really fascinating writer, like I get kind of pulled into your work, even if sometimes I don't like everything you have to say, I really enjoy reading your writing. And, well, that's uh, good yeah and in the introduction of the book you write that authentic Buddhism doesn't always come packaged the way we imagine it should and mm-hmm. when I read that I thought wow this statement really seems to sum up your entire approach the way I understand it and I was wondering if you could kind of unpack that for us and tell us a little bit about what you mean by that
1: well yeah it's um, it's very easy to put on the trappings of what people think think buddhism should be anybody can go out and buy a, a set of robes and anybody can shave their head and and look the part and it's not too difficult to be a good enough actor to just kind of ape what pop culture says a buddhist master should sound like you know have that little lilting voice and be you know whatever you know, Kane from Kung Fu talked like or something like that. And there may be authentic Buddhism, which looks like that, but it's not always going to come like that. I guess maybe the reference I was making when I wrote that or what I was thinking of is uh, my first Zen teacher was this guy, Tim McCarthy, who was not anybody's image of what a Zen teacher should be. And I wasn't really looking for a Zen teacher at the time anyway But he kind of came across as just very real and very genuine. And I think there's probably a lot of that. There are teachers who don't look the way you think they should look and don't talk the way you think they should talk. It's kind of hard for people to recognize because they're uh, kind of being guided by these images that they have. The images mostly come from pop culture and they're mostly invented by people who don't know anything about Buddhism anyway. So they they're not the real deal. I was just thinking about a guy who showed up at one of my classes since I teach in Santa Monica. There's uh, a lot of people who were in the film industry show up. And there was a guy who came to a couple of them and he was working on a show and maybe some of the people who listen to this podcast have seen it. I haven't seen it. But it's about a uh, supposedly Zen Buddhist cop or detective. And this guy was saying he wasn't one of the writers on the show, but he knew the writers. And he's, told the main writer you know if you want to see some real zen in action you can come and see he was talking about me and then there's zen shuji downtown and in, in los angeles there's several places you could go and experience it and the writer said no he doesn't want to experience real zen because he feels that would prejudice his work which i just thought was bizarre
0: that is very bizarre kind of makes me wonder why some of the best actors then tend to go and, and kind of live in the roles they're about to take on. Uh, yeah. It seems like <laughs> that might be a good approach also, but... Yeah. So, this also comes through in the way that, that you write and the way that kind of your book is marketed. I mean when I walk down the kind of Buddhist bookstore aisle, like your books actually pop out at me because of the way they the images and like Zen wrapped in karma, dipped in chocolate. I'm just like, what the heck is this? I mean, you you see all these other books that are almost have kind of real similar titles, like 10 Steps to Living a Mindful Life and so-and-so. And And your books really pop out in a way that I think challenges the notion that authentic Buddhism should look like 10 Steps to Living a Mindful Life. Is that something that you've consciously done w- with regards to the way that your books are marketed and the way that the design's done and the titles and all that?
1: Well, I guess so. I, I, the, I, You know, the marketing is kind of done by the publishers, although they do involve me in it. And I found I found the cover artist, the guy uh, named Johnny Crap, who did the last two books, Sit Down and Shut Up and Zen Wrapped in Karma. So I do have something to do with it. I, I don't know. When I first started, when I wrote... Hardcore Zen, or what became Hardcore Zen, which was actually called Sit Down and Shut Up originally. I just wrote it for myself. I'd written books before, novels that I tried to get published, and I couldn't get them published. I wanted to keep on writing, so I wrote this book about my life and my um, Zen practice and and how that had developed. And when I got through with it, I thought, there's no way anybody's going to Published this book because I'd been to the same bookstore shelves and looked at the Zen books and they all had the little ripply water cover and those titles and they didn't have anything about punk rock and they didn't have anything about Godzilla. You know, there was nothing like that in there. I just uh, thought this was unpublishable. So I was really surprised when it got out there. But yeah, when I looked at those other books, I just thought because my teachers had said I ought to write a book about Zen and. I thought, there's no way I can write a book about Zen, because I've seen what books about Zen look like, and I can't write one of those books. I just can't. I actually tried at one point, because I wasn't really sure what to do with uh, what eventually became Zen Wrapped in Karma and Dipped in Chocolate. So I started to try to write a more standard Zen book, and I couldn't get through it. So it is conscious, and, you know, it's, it's all right. Those books, I suppose, have their place, and some of them are good. You know, I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I mean, I still read it occasionally. I still pick it up and read it. And it's more like what you expect a Zen book to be. So there are some good things in there, but then there's a lot of stuff that's just, you know, this pretentious whatever. Somebody trying to prove how Buddhist they are in a book.
0: And have you found that the people attracted to your work? tend not to be the people that you'd find kind of in run-of-the-mill Buddhist centers and monasteries and things like that?
1: Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes not. It's funny that I seem to go over okay when I do speaking engagements in pretty much standard places like San Francisco Zen Center or or, uh, some of these Zen Centers I go to, uh, Houston and some other places. The regular people are there. Of course, they, they always tell me that there are a lot of people who show up who never showed up at their Zen Center before, so I guess that's a different audience. It's funny, though. My audience isn't exactly what you'd expect it to be. It isn't just crowds of guys with purple mohawks and girls with piercings through their eyebrows or whatever. What? It's not. There are a few people like that. I've been really surprised sometimes. There's. I'll tell you one incident... I was in New Mexico a couple of years ago, and I got to this place and I I went onto to the front of the stage where I was talking, it was like a podium. And there's these two women, probably in their 60s, sitting together in front. And I initially thought, oh, these they just walked into the wrong place. Maybe they heard Zen lecture and they didn't know what they were going to get. So I did the lecture they sat through the whole thing they didn't leave and they were the first ones to come up to me after the thing was over telling me how much they loved hardcore zen and, and wow. yeah I, I just pegged them as like they probably wandered into the wrong lecture so it kind of goes across the board there's a certain demographic I suppose but there's a lot of people who are way outside that demographic too
0: and one of the big aims of your book seems to demystify or, or kind of bring back down to earth what we'd consider, in quotes, spiritual. And it's yeah. interesting that you, the way you do that is you use yourself almost as an illustration. And I was wondering why you chose to do that, given how much heat kind of could come down on you from choosing to do that.
1: Well, it was the only way to do it. For this new book, I was looking at what exists in the sort of pop culture, Eastern spirituality thing world whatever it is in america these days and it's kind of disgusting it's funny there's a lot of very good very authentic zen teaching and buddhist teaching of various types going on in america in fact i think most of it really is very good but then there's a sort of pop culture buddhism most of which is pretty crappy or at least mediocre that's going on and that, like I said, is is largely invented by people who don't know anything about Buddhism anyway, who don't even practice at all. And because I've published books and because I'm on the internet and and get on TV sometimes and all that, I've become part of that world. And there's things that you're expected to do and expected to say and expected to be as part of that world. And I'm finding that I don't really like it. And I kind of wanted to give that thing, whatever it is, a little kick in the pants, because it needed it. It needed to be kind of torn down what people's expectations are of a Zen teacher or a, any kind of a teacher in Eastern spirituality, which I don't even like the word spirituality, but we can go into that on another topic. But just for, for the sake of just talking about it, because that's what people think of it as, people expect a sort of God-like super being who doesn't have any neuroses or hang-ups or anything, who, who's just perfectly calm and beautiful all the time and doesn't have anything to work on. And those people don't exist. You know, Ram Das who's, you know, I have mixed feelings about Ram Das, but he had this great quote, which he says, before I started my meditation, I have as many neuroses now as I did before I started my meditation practice, but now I just don't care. <laughs> so... You've got stuff. Everybody's got stuff. And I think it's important to talk about it and talk about what we do about that because that's what's really key. It's not this fantasy of uh, erasing your personality and becoming this cartoon of a master. Mm.
0: That kind of reminds me of a quote I heard from Jack Engler that with enlightenment and 75 cents, you can buy a can of Coke.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it.
0: And kind of connected to that, I saw a recent article that you wrote on Suicide Girls, which you titled Satori Porn. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I thought that was a kind of interesting point, because on the one hand, you're you're really trying to demystify things and bring it back down to earth and say, hey, you know, Zen isn't really about becoming this kind of super being, like you said, that's radiating love all the time and, and so on and so forth. And then on the other hand, you're also interested in not making enlightenment or awakening experiences central, also, I was yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that
1: I really don't like that whole idea of the enlightenment experience or awakening experience, or they they keep changing the name you know every time somebody says something about well, we shouldn 't have enlightenment experiences," and they say oh it 's an awakening experience, but you're talking about the same thing. You're talking about this experience that's supposed to happen and it's supposed to fix everything forever. And th- those experiences just don't happen, and people can get confused by that and get sold on having big experiences, which, which I think is problematic. For one thing, it encourages a sort of rushing, get-it-done-quick attitude where people will go headlong into their stuff, and that's a little dangerous. You don't want to really open up the doors of perception or whatever you call them, too quickly because you're not ready for what's behind those doors. You've got to build up to that. Everybody does. There's no exceptions. So anybody who rushes into it or tries to get there too quickly is going to have big problems. And I don't want to encourage people to go into those kind of things too quickly. And then there's the whole idea that nobody knows really, at least culturally, what enlightenment is supposed to be So confused people will invent confused versions of what enlightenment is supposed to be and then train you on getting to that. And then you'll have an experience. They might be able to produce some kind of an experience for you. But that experience isn't going to do you a bit of good. It's just going to throw you into deeper confusion. And that doesn't help anything. That actually makes the problem worse. So I want to avoid any of that. You know, at the same time, if you do the practice long enough and if you're sincere about it, you'll have insights. You'll, you may even have big insights. But just because you've had those big insights doesn't necessarily fix everything. You still have to act upon those insights. This is what I think people miss you know, they think that they're going to have the insight, and the insight itself is going to fix everything, but it's not going to happen. You still need to work just as hard. In fact, you, you you may even have to work harder once you've had that kind of insight, because then you know, oh my God, this is what it's really all about. And sometimes that means you're going to have to make big changes in your life, and most of us are very resistant to that. I know I am.
0: So it sounds like you're trying to, in some ways, untangle this idea that with certain big insights or big experiences that somehow that's going to fix other aspects of one's life. And that yeah. to tie those things together in some ways to miss the point of spiritual practice in some way or to miss the point of Zen, we could say. Right. So Right, yeah. So it's, in that way, it sounds like you're leaning towards describing enlightenment not really as an experience. That is not well, it's, somehow not tied up in experience. Is that true?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's beyond experience. I don't know exactly what it is. If you think of it in terms of, you know, this is getting a little weird or deep, I suppose. But if you think of it in terms of linear time, it seems like an experience. It seems like something that occurred at three thirty in the afternoon on December fifteenth, nineteen ninety. Five or whatever, and stopped you know an hour later or whatever, but that isn't really the i i I'm finding that it's difficult to describe this without using the word experience, so like experientially it isn't an experience it's sort of like it's something else it's like describing enlightenment as an experience would be like describing your physical body as an experience i mean. There might be some realm in which you could describe even your physical body as an experience. It sort of happens one you know one day march fifth nineteen sixty four and ends whenever it ends, hopefully a long time from now. but it's not when you're actually living it it's it's something alive it's something that that actually seems to be. My teacher described it as more you than you could ever be. And it's also something you do. You, you have to do enlightenment. This is why Dogen said that uh, Zazen practice was enlightenment itself, because Zazen practice is the actualized activity of enlightenment. And of boredom, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> and of sitting on your ass for a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and of sitting on your ass for a long time. But that's enlightenment right there.